0: Welcome to PwC's weekly accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, we turn our attention to global accounting with a focus on the International Accounting Standards Board. I'm joined in the studio by Larry Dodek, PwC partner and a leader in our global accounting services group. He's here to give us insight into all that's new at the ISB. So Larry, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the IASB, and I know this is a topic that's of interest to a lot of our listeners because they're either multinationals or dual reporters and maybe even just IFRS reporters because we actually have quite a big audience outside the U.S., but before we get into things, for someone who's listening who's a U.S. Gap reporter and perhaps thinking, hmm, maybe I should press next for the next podcast, what would you say about why this might be relevant for them?
1: Uh, thanks, Heather. I'm glad to be here. I guess the, probably uh, what I'd say is that even though it's pretty clear, pretty apparent, the SEC has no immediate plans to require adoption of IFRS, there are a number of reasons why folks in the U.S. Uh, should be interested. First of all, we have a large number of foreign private issuers that uh, are in the U.S. who fall under IFRS. And they do that without having any reconciliation to U.S. GAAP. The second thing I'd mention is, you know, we live in a global economy, right? We have U.S. subs of foreign parents Mm -hmm. that need to report under IFRS. We have global buyers who are applying IFRS of U.S. companies. We have U.S. buyers of foreign companies that are applying IFRS. And that's why we stress in our shop the importance of being financially bilingual.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to say that because um, I did have one of those subsidiaries you're talking about was one of my clients. But I'm always surprised when I come across other people like, yeah, I dealt with IFRS and XYZ situation because it really does seem like it's um, everywhere. So then, Larry, my other question before we get into the, the meat of it um, is if you could just help explain your role, because I think people are sometimes surprised that someone in the U.S. is focused on IFRS and working with the ISB. So can you just give a quick background?
1: Well, absolutely. Um, I'm PwC's global leader of our business combinations team, and I'm also our our current uh, EITF representative. So I work with both IFRS and US GAAP. I travel to both Norwalk, Connecticut, and... Um, as well as London meeting with both staff of the FASB and the ISB as well as the board members. Yes, so.
0: you have an interesting perspective then and definitely I guess you're seeing different issues from around the globe too which I'm sure adds another level of interest to your job. So then why don't we jump into starting point which would just be a little background on the ISB. So most people are aware of what it is, what IFRS is, but A little bit more about the board members and how it works, I think, would be helpful to kind of set the stage for our audience.
1: Sure, Heather. As you might expect from a global organization like the ISB, the board's composition is geographically balanced. So the board currently has 14 members, of which two are appointed as chair and vice chair, with the requirement that four members come from Europe, and currently they are in the UK, Germany, France, and the Netherlands. Four members come from the Asia-Oceania region, so that would be China, South Korea, Japan, and Australia currently. Four members come from the Americas, two currently from the U.S., uh, one from Brazil, one from Canada. One member from Africa, and that would be in South Africa. And one member can come from any region. And the members are appointed to a five-year term with the opportunity for one renewal up to an additional five years, so 10 years total, much like the FASB. And just like the FASB, I mean, their goal is to bring in members with diverse technical expertise and backgrounds. So you have members that come from national standard setters or national regulators, some with large public accounting backgrounds, some from academia, some from a preparer or a user background. One of the current board members from the U.S., Gary Kubrick, who's the former chief accounting officer from Xerox, his term is about to expire. In June of 2020, and to date, uh, my understanding is the position has not yet been filled, so there's an opportunity Ah. for any one of our listeners who thinks that's a great opportunity for them, they can uh, put their hat in the ring.
0: Very good. So then, Larry, actually, that was one of the questions I had when I was looking. The terms of the members are all different. I mean, they're always five years, but they don't all end on specific days, right? They could be all different years.
1: That's correct. You know, so they they try to stagger the terms, and the renewals are up to five years. So sometimes the renewals can be only like three
0: years. Um, So
1: they'll try and make sure that they're staggered.
0: Yes, makes sense. Okay, well then why don't you mention briefly that two of the 14 are the chair and the vice chair. And I know similar to the FASB, they're getting ready for some rotation there, but can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so Hans Hooghevors from the Netherlands is currently the chairman of the ISB. Uh, He succeeded Sir David Tweedy in 2011, and he's coming near the end of his second five-year term, uh, which will expire in 2021. So there is a search in place for a successor, so it's another opportunity go, for, for one of our listeners yes. who might be interested in that role. It's probably very fair to say the Hans' path to the chairman role was not a traditional path. Okay? For many years in the late 90s, early 2000s, he held a number of ministry positions in the Dutch government, so political positions. Yeah. He then became chairman of the executive board of the Dutch Regulator. And then became chairman of the technical committee of IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissions. He became chair of the advisory group to the ISB during the financial crisis, and that's what led up to his becoming uh, chairman of the ISB.
0: So I was just thinking, I think most of our listeners probably don't have that type of resume, but you never know, so. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, pro- probably not. Uh, but then talking about the vice chair, yeah. Sue Lloyd, uh, you know, her background is much more traditional. Okay. So, you know, what, what's her background? So she was a member of the Australian Standards Board, and then she came to work at the ISB, as a, first as a project manager back in 2002. She became the senior technical director And then she joined the board back in 2014. And now she chairs the IFRS Interpretations Committee as well as being the vice chair on the board. Now her term expires at the end of 2023. So she would have been a logical candidate Mm -hmm. to take over for Hans. But with the fact that her term ends only a couple years from now, you know, it might not make the most sense for her right. to, to be in that.
0: So then, is it too early to ask you with a crystal ball if we expect a lot of change as we look over the next few years with the change in a chair? Or we need more time to see who the new chair is going to be?
1: Well, it's it's just like the FASB. I mean, you know, you know, a lot of the direction comes from who the chairman is and where they want to take it. A lot of what Hans has been doing, and he's done a very good job in terms of building consensus about among the board members mm-hmm. in terms of finalizing a lot of the projects um, that were, you know, still you know left to be completed from Sir David Tweedy's term. So. Think, you know revenue recognition, leases, uh, and, you know, financial instruments, impairment projects. You know, he completed all of those projects during his term, as well as a couple other projects as well.
0: Well, so I want to get to the IFRIC, which you mentioned, but one question that's thinking with 14 members, first of all, how many people have to vote yes, and then how much harder is it to get consensus versus the seven that we see with the FASB?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, the, the requirement is to have a you know, supermajority. And so, yeah, it can be difficult, but uh, I would think with Hans's background, that's probably been a helpful yes, part of so. his background in terms of trying to build consensus. Yeah,
0: will and when you talk about the number of huge projects they completed, obviously he was successful in that, so it's mm-hmm. impressive. So then you mentioned um, the IFRIC, and that uh, Sue is the chair. And you also mentioned that you are on the EITF. So maybe just to give a little background for our listeners what the IFRIC does and maybe how it compares to the EITF.
1: Sure. So the IFRS Interpretations Committee, and it was formerly called IFRIC, is an interpretive body of the board. And it works much like the EITF role does here in the U.S. for the FASB. And the most significant role is for the Interpretations Committee to respond to questions raised by constituents on the application of IFRS standards. So when the Interpretation Committee is asked a question, it first has to answer three questions, three things. Mm. Will this question have a material effect? Is it necessary to change IFRS standards to address the issue? And can the matter be resolved efficiently? And if the answer to these three questions is yes... Then it either will develop uh, an Ifric interpretation, which adds to the understanding of the issue. So think something like Ifric Twenty-Three on income tax uncertainties, which helped, you know, in terms of the application of the income tax standard. Or they'll ask the board to address through a narrow scope amendment to the standard if the standard, in fact, does need. To be revised.
0: Oh, so that was going to be a question I had. So even if it requires a change to standard, they could take it up, and then they would just recommend to the board to make the change?
1: Yeah, the, well, the board would actually do the narrow scope okay. amendment. So you asked about one of the differences yeah. between, you know, the interpretations committed in the EITF. The EITF is allowed to actually amend, you know, the, you know, standards and make changes mm-hmm. to standards, ultimately getting approved by the board, but it can recommend making changes, whereas if there's a change to a standard, that has to come directly from the board, uh, by the ISB. So, in both of those cases, mm-hmm. the board's approval will be required. In most cases, though, the answers to those three questions that I mentioned, you know, one or more of the questions, the answer is going to no. be no. no. Okay and so then what happens and and in those cases in most cases anyway that will result in an agenda decision where the interpretation committee shares their analysis and conclusion and how they believe the existing standard should be interpreted and this can be very helpful because it brings a lot of sunshine to the process you know the interpretation meetings are open to the public mm-hmm. The agenda decisions are subject to due process where drafts are exposed for public comment and then they're subsequently re-deliberated based upon the comments received. So a very helpful process. It's very interesting to note that if you look at the most recent agenda decisions, you know almost all of them have related to either interpretations of the new standards, mm-hmm. IFRS 9 on revenue 15 or 16, 16. Yeah. or how those new standards Relate to existing standards, um, and so you know sometimes you know things don't always right. seem to meet in the middle right. uh, when you're talking about existing standards well, and with that's the new been ones.
0: A big challenge we've had under U.S. GAAP too, right? As the new standards have been adopted, seeing how they interact with some of our other guidance. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so then, one of the things you said that was interesting that I guess was sort of aware of, but hadn't thought through, is the fact that there's due process on the agenda decisions. So they get an issue, they write something, and then there is an opportunity for comment. If And I know I'm familiar with it because one that I think we had some comments on, but I guess this way they can make sure it really does represent a consensus before it becomes part of their record.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they will they look at all of the comments that are received and they, you know, it is subject to re-deliberations, you know, depending on, you know, is there something that was missed in the original discussion.
0: And then I think that kind of leads into maybe the heart of our discussion, which would be around the ISB's agenda. And maybe we'll split into two parts, starting with the short term and then turning our attention to the long term so if you were to summarize or give some highlights from the short-term agenda what are your thoughts?
1: Well not a complete list a few of the short-term standard-setting projects that come to mind first there's an exposure draft that was issued last year with a number of like target amendments to the new um, standard for insurance contracts Mm -hmm. IFRS 17 right? And as those from the insurance industry are well aware, IFRS 17 is effective in 2021 for calendar year companies. And unlike in the U.S., there was no comprehensive insurance standard under uh, under IFRS, and so this has been a major undertaking for insurers um, in this area. And the proposed amendments are really in response to the feedback from stakeholders that have arisen during the implementation process the most significant of which is they need more time, uh, as you might expect.
0: We've seen that in the U.S. too.
1: Yes, from time to time, yes. Yes. And so one of the proposed amendments, in fact, is to delay the effective date by one year. Um, The comment period ended on these uh, uh, proposed amendments in September. And the board is currently working through the re-deliberations. So that would be the first project i mentioned. The second project I would mention is IBOR reform. Yes, very
0: important.
1: Yes, and similar to projects being undertaken in the U.S. by the FASB, the ISB is currently working on responding to accounting implications of interest rate benchmark reform. The first phase uh, dealt with pre-replacement issues, um, and that was completed in September of last year. And the board is now working on phase two of the project on you know, having to do with actual replacement, um, including implications on hedge accounting, interactions with other standards, you know, disclosures, things like that. And we expect an exposure draft sometime in the second quarter uh, of this year to deal with that. So that would be the second thing I'd mention. And then the third thing I'd mention is that the board has a larger financial reporting project. Which is definitely not a short-term yes. project, but they did recently issue two exposure drafts that I think would be interesting to our listening audience, dealing with financial statement presentation and disclosure. And the first exposure draft, for which the comment period closed at the end of 2019, focused on accounting policies and in particular disclosures of material policies, trying to eliminate where possible, you know, things about immaterial Mm -hmm. items or boilerplate disclosures. You know, how do you get that out of the financial statements? And the second exposure draft, which was just issued, the comment period ends in June of 2020, focuses on financial statement presentation and providing more transparency around performance reporting. So think of things like Providing additional subtotals in the income statements such as for operating, investing, and financing Mm -hmm. items, just like the cash flow statements, right? You know, it'd be kind of nice if the two, yeah, if you could kind of like, you know, match them up. Um, Starting the cash flow statement with operating profit rather than net income. Disaggregating unusual income and expense items rather than being able to net them. And requiring disclosures of management-defined performance measures reconciled to IFRS gap measures. So for this last one, think of non-gap yeah. measures, right? That you know we have all this SEC guidance, you know, for our public registrants, and we have all that comment, all those comment letters, right. and and speech Roles, gap, right. right? And so the you know the IF, ISB is trying to move in some direction of you know, putting something in the financial statements on performance measures. Yeah,
0: it's interesting because there's overall just discussion about relevance of financial statements. And I guess your point here is the ISBs actively trying to make changes that would contribute to the ongoing relevance of financial reporting. Exactly. Very interesting. So then when I was listening to you talk about that proposal in particular you know in US GAAP we don't have a lot of prescriptive guidance on the income statement maybe there is some SEC guidance and there already is some under IFRS do you think there's an appetite from preparers and users for this type of guidance or will too soon to tell
1: well that i mean that's the the reason for this so yeah. you know it'll, it'll be kind of interesting yeah. to see what the comments come back with right the the it's a 6 month comment period ends june 30th yeah, a yeah, so and that and that's a typical comment uh, period uh time that the ISP uses. You know, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of comments they come back with. But exactly what you were saying about making the financial statements more relevant, having, you know, information about financial performance, making the income statements relevant, mm-hmm. things like that are all at the forefront.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one, even if you're not an IFRS reporter, probably an interesting one to watch because it is something I think a lot of people are grappling with just in terms of what is sort of the future of that. So very interesting. So then, I know there's just some highlights, but if we then look at the longer-term agenda, what are some that you would highlight for our listeners?
1: Sure, sure. There's a few projects that come to mind. First, uh, the board has a project called FICE, which is financial instruments with characteristics of equity. I got to get that right. Yes. Um, Good that, abbreviation. that has been, uh, you know, the board's been trying to tackle this one for a while, and that's because IS thirty-two, which is the financial instruments presentation standard, I would say, my own personal opinion, it's a very rules-driven uh, standard. It doesn't work well with complex financial instruments. Um, The board issued a discussion paper in June 2018, and frankly the comments were all over the lot, so this one's really stay tuned in terms of what direction they want to take that uh, project.
0: And that's an interesting project because they're taking a comprehensive look at this, right, versus the FASB is doing their target improvements, so it's a place where we're seeing the two boards kind of take a different approach.
1: Although frankly the discussion paper you know, given the comments that they received on it, one of the tax might be oh, to, to take, take a, a more <laughs> take a more targeted approach. So at least make
0: some progress. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly yeah. right. So it's kind of be interesting to see exactly where they go with it. Right. The second project I'd mention is just like the FASB, um, the board has a project to look at the subsequent accounting for goodwill, and we expect a dis- uh, discussion paper in sometime during this first quarter, which is expected to look at three things primarily. Uh, one is better disclosures around the subsequent performance of an acquisition. Two is the age-old question, of amortization yeah. versus impairment of goodwill. And the third would be some targeted improvements around the impairment test yeah, under IS36.
0: So I'm tempted to ask your views on these, but I know that's a whole other podcast, so yes, I'll the, let you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: the, the one thing I would say, um, at least as it relates to the Im- amortization versus impairment question, which I know there's a lot of you know very passionate views yes. on both sides uh, of the fence here. In um, this one, the boards aren't officially working together but one thing that came through loud and clear in the comments that the, the FASB received here in the U.S. is that IFRS and U.S. gaps should stay converged in this area to the extent possible.
0: Yeah, so then, and again, you might not want to use your crystal ball, but so do we think the FASB project might slow down a little to give the ISB chance to catch up so that they have an opportunity to stay converged? Or you're looking at me like... I have no answer to this question. It's it's
1: a great it's a great yeah. question, and yeah. no one really knows yeah. where that one's going to go. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a new chairman at the FASB, so you know where he wants to take it. Right. You know, it'll it's be hard to say. Yes, yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So so those are two projects. Uh, the third project I'd mention is the ISB is undertaking a post implementation review of the consolidations, joint arrangements. In disclosure of interest in other entities standards, so this is IFRS 10, 11, and 12, um, and this is something that the board does. You know, after a few years, after a standard is issued, they take a look to see what are the issues in applying the standard, what's you know working well, what's not, are things functioning as they intended when the standard was written. And the staff is currently doing their research now. Um, we can expect a discussion paper sometime this year probably on it. And depending on the feedback they receive, don't be surprised to get some you know, you know, projects in terms of you know, either targeted improvements you know, to those standards as well down the line. And then finally, I'd probably close with two other projects um, that the board is working on. The first one is business combinations under common control where unlike US GAAP, there's no specific guidance under RFRS uh, pertaining to business combinations where the business is ultimately controlled by the same parent. And we expect a discussion paper on this sometime in 2020, probably in the summertime, I would think. And one that I know is near and dear to your heart.
0: Oh, I hope you're talking about what I'm expecting. Is the
1: project on rate-regulated accounting. And that's something that was started about 10 years ago. And that was paused for a while when IFRS 14 was issued, which you probably remember. And that that was the one that allowed companies to apply previous GAAP for regulatory balances when adopting IFRS. Um, But now, you know, the board is now um, uh, resurfacing uh, that project, um, and we actually expect an exposure draft on this project sometime this year. Uh, And I'm sure this will have great interest not only to you but also to a number of our listeners in the utility industry Definitely. as well.
0: Definitely. And you're right. I'm just grinning from ear to ear because this is one we've waited a long time. I think I was, I've was i been at National three times. I think this is around the first time I was there was when they were talking about it before. <laughs> so um, it, it will be interesting to see. And I, I do think a lot of interest in the U.S. just because lots of multinational utilities. So... Fingers crossed they can get something done. Absolutely. Yeah. So then, Larry, those are all really helpful. Maybe you touched on this a little, but just as a follow-up question, how are the boards sort of working together then? I know officially they're no longer working, but it does seem like on some of these projects they're at least keeping each other informed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're exactly right. I mean, they don't work jointly on projects anymore, like the two boards did during the heyday and, and working on the standards. But both chairmen, you know, I mean, both Russ and Hans have expressed their desires to work collaboratively, share their research, you know, share potential solutions to the standard-setting problems. You know, I hope that, you know, will exact, you know, in fact be the case on the Goodwill Project. Mm -hmm. That's one where they worked so hard to get to a a single solution, it would be a shame if now they kind of diverged.
0: Yeah, it is interesting anyone who is interested in high quality financial reporting, I think the more the boards can at least share information, even if they reach different conclusions, I think it's beneficial to everyone. Exactly. Good. Well, Larry, thank you so much. Really great insight and really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks, Heather. Did you know the term cyberspace was coined almost 40 years ago? And yet cybersecurity is one of the most important topics for executives today. And as you'll learn next week, cybersecurity is actually a team sport and not just a discussion for the IT department. So join me here again next Tuesday when I'm joined by Jim Fox, PwC Cybersecurity and Privacy National Innovation Leader. So that you'll never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'd love to hear from you. So write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com or to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the US member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.